You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Thank you very much for joining us for episode four, Teller from Jerusalem. Thank you for joining. I'm so happy to see so many new people coming. The more that come, the happier we will be. So keep on coming and coming and coming and coming. Okay, we left off talking about Henry Ford, who was a very influential individual. What Henry Ford says, people listen. It's not like a bartender telling a joke about Jews. When, when Henry Ford says this, and when he prints it, and when he distributes it, it's all across America. Because if someone wants a car, in Henry Ford's time, there isn't the choice to go to other brands. It's Ford, 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 and Ford. He's about the most popular American, certainly one of the wealthiest, and his influence commands respect and attention. And he's spewing exactly the same things that Adolf Hitler is saying in Germany. The two were in collusion. In 1938, Ford received an award from the Nazi regime called the Grand Cross of the German Eagle. They were both in the 1920s. They both began to write and disseminate the very same information. And they spoke about the Jew. The Jew is always singular. There's no diversion. There's no differentiation. It's always a singular, the Jew, guilty of everything. Hitler could point to Ford as the same kind of anti-Semite that he was, because they were both the same. The Protocols of the Elder Zion was a cherished text for both Hitler and for Ford. There was obviously business connections between the Ford Motor Works and Nazi Germany. The Protocols of the Elder Zion, even though they were proved to be a forgery and nothing true about them, totally fictional, were assigned to German school children. And this becomes an important text to all anti-Semitic groups from then until this very day. The political scientist Stephen Brunner described the protocols as probably the most influential work of anti-Semitism ever written. What the Communist Manifesto was for Marxism, the fictitious protocols, is for anti-Semitism. And now we go back to France. Riots break out in the streets between the Dreyfusards and the anti-Dreyfusards, between the left and the right. Those who realize that there's been a cover-up, the government is covering something which isn't true, Esterhazy is the guilty party, and those who say no matter what, the Jew has to be guilty. Even though Dreyfus was a wealthy man, he had no motive whatsoever to spy, and he never confessed, and there was never a shred of evidence to make him guilty. The military tried Emil Zola for libel, and he was found guilty, and he escaped to England for his, for his safety. Esterhazy was tried, and he was found innocent, but he too escaped to England for his safety. But the evidence of a, of a cover-up was so strong, and it was mounting, that there was no choice to bring Dreyfus back for retrial in 1899. By this time, Dreyfus did not have one tooth left in his mouth. For four years, he had not spoken to a single individual. He had been the only prisoner on Devil's Island, not had a conversation with an individual, like we said, for four years. Again, the military conducted a secret trial in camera, and again, Dreyfus was found to be guilty. The president offered Dreyfus a pardon if he would confess, but he wouldn't confess because he was not a guilty man. In 1906, the military cleared the case, and Dreyfus was reinstated into the army, achieved a high rank in World War I, where he served with honor and dignity, and he was dismissed with even an award. 
An assassin attempted to kill Dreyfus. He only wounded him. And Elmo Zola, that famous author who wrote Jacuz, was asphyxiated. They, put, they clogged up his chimney so that the carbon monoxide would poison him. Dreyfus passed away in 1935 at the age of 76, never appreciating the role that he had in providence and in establishing the state of Israel. Herzl did not live to see Dreyfus reinstated, for he died himself in 1904 at the age of 44. The Jewish purchase of the land of Israel, although entirely legal, done under the Ottomans, was under the suspicion of the Ottomans and the Arabs. They didn't like all these Jews coming to Israel and buying land. Maybe they want to come and settle over here. In 1881, the Ottomans outlawed land purchases in Palestine by Jews and by Christians. They forbade Jews to come to Palestine. However, there was widespread corruption in the Ottoman Empire, and for bakshish, for the right bribe, you could get whatever you wanted if you knew who to bribe and whose palm to Greece. Even when Herzl met the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, this was done and arranged through a bribe. All you needed was bakshish. At the end of the 1800s, nationalism's percolating throughout the world. Among the assertions of the nationalists came that revolution for Zionism. European Jews were attacked repeatedly, and they were marginalized constantly. Zionism was the national liberation movement of the Jewish people, a movement that could change the existential condition of the Jew. The early Zionists came to Israel. They wished to sever their connection to what had come before them, to the exile, to the diaspora Jew. They wanted to create the new Jew. Even part of this was to change their names. Of the first four prime ministers of Israel, each one of them changed their name. Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, named after the airport, his name was David Gruen. Moshe Sharet, the second prime minister, his name was Moshe Shertak, which was changed to Sharet. Israel's third prime minister, Levi Eshkol, who was named after Ramat Eshkol, changed his name from Levi Shkolnik to Levi Eshkol. And Israel's fourth prime minister, Israel's first female prime minister, changed her name from Golda Meirson to Golda Meir. Golda Meir came from Milwaukee. Zionism was also a revolution against the very possibility that there could be Jews which would have no place to go and call a haven, no place to escape to. Throughout centuries of discrimination and expulsions, this was always a very pressing need. But never was it more acutely understood than during the Holocaust, when Jews had nowhere to flee to. All the doors of the world were closed. There was no safe haven. America closed its doors. Canada closed its doors. They couldn't go to Israel because the execrable white paper, which forbade Jewish immigration into Palestine. Wherever boats came, loaded and laden with Jews, they were turned around. Sometimes they were even sunk. No country wanted surplus Jews. Zionism was determined to change this. It was committed to a world in which Jews would not be homeless. Perhaps the best example would be the story of the SS St. Louis, or as it came to be known, the Voyage of the Dam. In May of 1939, a boat loaded with 937 Jewish passengers, all of them obviously very wealthy Jews. Jews had all their rights taken away with them in the Nuremberg Laws of the summer of 1935, they had their possessions taken away from them. They had exit taxes taken from them. And with all their few meager possessions, where they were hounded in the streets, then after Kristallnacht, 
the Jewish community was fined one billion Reichmarks, which brought German Jewry to grinding poverty. So if they could take passage on the SS St. Louis, that meant they had a lot of money to pay for their passage and to pay for landing rights to Cuba. So St. Louis set sails in May 1939, and it docks in Cuba. It docks in Havana, Cuba. It is tethered to the port. You can look up and see the passengers. But the Cubans want a bribe. Now in Latin America, South America, Central America, Spanish America, a bribe is a way of life. I'll bet you that one of the first words you learn in Spanish is el bribo. So if they need a bribe, what should you do? I'll say that one more time. Nearly 1,000 Jews have managed finally to escape from Germany. They are already in the West Air, docked in the port, tethered in Havana. They need a bribe. What should American Jewry and the Jewry do on their behalf? Obviously give them a bribe. How do they say in Staples? That was simple, or that was easy, but it wasn't so easy to American Jewry. A bribe? A bribe's against the law. We can't violate the law. Now, the captain of the ship, Gustav Schroeder, a German, was a benevolent, magnanimous humanitarian. And he figured, well, America's a humane country, and of the 937 passengers, 736 had visas to go to America, but they only be valid in three months' time. So he figures, surely America will take them. He steams the ship up and down the eastern seaboard. How does America greet the boat? With a Coast Guard cutter to intercept. Had somehow they managed to jump off the boat and swim the 20 miles to Miami through shark-infested waters, they would have been sent back. And now it's my pleasure to introduce you to an important hero, a name I suspect you don't know. So hold this thought with the St. Louis. I dare say hold the thought for about a week's time, because we'll come back to it, of course. And at this juncture, I want to introduce you to James G. McDonald. In Netanya, there is the McDonald Synagogue, the McDonald Shul, or according to its website, the Mac Shul. Now, if you ask in Netanati, that is the sobriquet, the moniker for someone who lives in that Mediterranean town between Haifa and Tel Aviv, why is it called the McDonald Synagogue? And they'll tell you because of the five McDonald restaurants, fast food restaurants in close proximity. But that's a mistake. It's called the McDonald Synagogue because it's on Rehov, it's on McDonald Street. What was McDonald's first name? Rehov. That was a little joke. Very little. Okay. So the reason it's called McDonald's is because it's on McDonald Street. And who was this McDonald? There are a few individuals that have contributed more to the cause of the Jews and of Israel as James Grover McDonald, an unwilling witness to the pivotal events that led to the Holocaust. McDonald's one of the most fervent and essential advocates for the creation of the Jewish state. When the Holocaust was just a gleam in the perverted, cracked mind of Hitler, MacDonald understood what he was up to. Why is it that people in the West or Jewish leaders didn't understand what MacDonald understood, the kind of destruction that was going to befall European Jewry? And perhaps the simplest answer is, is that denial is not just a river in Egypt. Representing President Wilson's idea of promoting a League of Nations throughout the world, MacDonald was his representative. He went to Europe, and because his mother was German, he spoke German fluently. When he came to Germany, he knew many of the important officials because he had met them when they were students in Harvard. And they loved the fact that he spoke German. But they were obsessed with Jews. All they could talk about were the evil of the Jews. MacDonald was one of the first Americans to have an appointment and a meeting with Hitler. 
And Hitler said, I'm going to wring their necks. I will do to the Jews what everybody wants to do to the Jews, but they don't know how. I will teach them how to get rid of them. MacDonald took Hitler's words at face value. He went to the President of the United States, FDR, named after the highway in Manhattan, and he told him what Hitler wanted to do. And FDR said he'll deal with it, but he never did a thing. Now, American Jewry was far shickered, intoxicated with FDR. You ask a Jew in the 30s who was a leader, they would respond in Yiddish, it the drei Welten. There are three worlds. The word for world in Yiddish is Welt. It the drei Welten. There's three worlds. Der Welt, Jenner Welt, und Roosevelt. This world, the world to come, and Roosevelt in the very same breath. It was clear to MacDonald that Hitler wanted to destroy and murder all of European Jewry. Unlike others who dismissed Hitler as a madman, and they thought it was just rhetoric, MacDonald took him at his word. Paul Johnson, the historian, said, there has never been an individual who was more explicit about what he intended to do than Hitler. The Immigration Act of 1924 that was passed in America under xenophobia and a Klan influence sharply restricted immigration to the United States. Jews were considered and deemed undesirable, and they were strictly restricted. This did not change even in 1938 when they were all refugees and desperately needed a roof over their head. America decided they would not let them in. MacDonald beseeched FDR to condemn the Nazi treatment of the Jews and allow them to come. But never, even in all the famed fireside chats of FDR ever, did he ever talk about the plight of European Jewry. The immigration quotas from Germany and Austria were halved and halved and cut and cut, and this was done by the Under Secretary of State, Breckeridge Long, a crony of FDR, with FDR's agreement. Breckeridge Long was a deep southerner. He was clearly an anti-Semite, and he had no interest whatsoever in doing anything for the Jews. He did everything possible that he could to be detrimental to the Jews. His efforts were made sure that Jews would not come to America. The short on long was that he sealed the doors of America shut. He slammed them shut, and Roosevelt endorsed this policy. Long recorded in his diary that we can postpone and postpone and postpone issuing visas for the entry of Jews into the United States. And you've all seen the pictures, and we'll show them, of people waiting online, even past curfew, for the embassies when they have instructions to postpone, postpone, and never issue visas that they should come to America. To America. We're all familiar with the long lines of refugees trying to get out to America, even though they would violate curfew, but they didn't realize that they were waiting for naught, because instructions from Breckeridge Long were not to let them into America. He sealed the doors of America shut. The mood in America was very anti-immigration. It was also very anti-Semitic. There was a backlash in America after World War I, where 117,000 troops had died. 200,000 were wounded. And the Congress in America was very isolationist, and they just did not want to get again embroiled in a European affair. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, was a man in his 70s, but at that time was really, really quite old. He was a Southerner. He was from Tennessee. Many assumed that he must be senile. He did not have a sympathetic, attuned perspective towards refugees. He didn't care about those that were suffering from persecution. 
The only way to make the plight of European Jewry significant would be if American Jewry would have done something, gone public, and used the press to try and influence the president. They did not do this. The only dim light was that of the Vat Hatzalah, not to be confused with the ambulance corps, those group of American Orthodox Jews that tried to make a little noise and do action to save Jews in Europe. Otherwise, it was a total eclipse and darkness. But MacDonald himself, he tirelessly fought to try and get Jews out of Germany. He worked closely with Chaim Weizmann. MacDonald then approached the international community. By that time, reports about a deliberate Nazi plan to exterminate the Jews had reached the West. The Allies wanted Pope Pius XII to join them in a joint declaration condemning the atrocities. The pontiff refused. He approached the Pope, all with very little success. Since he was not getting anywhere, he left all the jobs that he was involved in and began to work as an editorial writer for the New York Times. There he was an unrelenting voice for Zionism. MacDonald was only able to secure 2,000 visas for German refugees to come to America. That is pitifully, unconsciously a small amount, but it's hardly nothing. So now we're able to return to the SS St. Louis, where the Cuban government will not let them in without bakshish. Gustav Schroeder, the captain, is a benevolent person. He wants to bring it to America, but America sends a Coast Guard cutter to intercept. Then comes James G. McDonald with a plan. Right there in the hood are the Virgin Islands. That's the American territory. Let them go to the Virgin Islands. But it's FDR himself, named after the highway of Manhattan, who returns the answer of Gordon Hull, the Secretary of State, who says they can't go to the Virgin Islands. Why? The quintessential, the perfect catch-22. To go to the Virgin Islands, they would have to come in on a tourist visa. A tourist visa means you have a home to go back to. But these are German Jews. From the Nuremberg Laws in 1935, they have been stripped of citizenship. They've been expelled from Germany. They have no home to go back to. So they can't come to American territory as a refugee because a refugee must have a home to go back to. They have no home. And therefore, even though they're refugees, the greatest refugees, they're not kosher refugees because they have no home to return to. And therefore, Cordon Hull refused them visas. So you have the voyage of the dam. 930, 937 Jewish passengers who make it all the way to Cuba, all the way to Western Hemisphere. No country will take them. And they go back to where they came from. And they will dock back in Europe. And a significant number of them will perish in the Holocaust. The whole point of Zionism was to make sure that this would never, ever happen again. Thank you for joining this episode. Please keep coming and subscribing and sharing and liking. Bring your friends, bring your neighbors. We'll see you again at the next episode. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Tele products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Tele from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com. 
please see our YouTube channel for a richer than just audio experience. With spiffy visual components and elements, we're also accessible from the Telefilm Jerusalem website, where the list of general and specific credits are listed.